Now let's turn to the scriptures that we'll be looking the scripture that we'll be looking at tonight in Acts four and five. If you'll turn to Acts chapter four, uh, starting at verse twenty-three. Acts chapter four, beginning at verse twenty-three, and we'll read through uh, chapter five, verse fourteen. Uh, young people and children, pay attention as you hear what was going on in the church in the early days of the New Testament. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. When they were released, this is Peter and John, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you had anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who had believed were of one heart and soul for no, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as they had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Continuing on into chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to him, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in 
not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And he sa she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of God? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. That, that's where we're going to stop. <laughs> Sorry. Again, you have an outline of the uh, message tonight. I hope you'll take some notes. As this morning in Acts uh, chapters 1 and 2, we read of Jesus Christ's commission uh, to his disciples before his ascension. And then of uh, their following his command and remaining in, in Jerusalem, waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. We read of how the Holy Spirit in chapter 2 descended on the day of Pentecost and how Peter then preached Christ crucified, how 3,000 people repented and believed and joined in the fellowship with the other disciples. From these first two chapters, we drew three principles this morning that the church must rely on the Holy Spirit, that the church must preach the good news of Jesus Christ, and that the church must devote itself to the means of grace. In chapter 3, which we haven't read yet, but let's look at chapter 3. In chapter 3, as Peter and John were going up to the temple for the prayers at the hour of prayer, in the ninth hour it says in chapter 3, verse 1, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, they saw a beggar who regularly uh, sat at the entrance to the temple who was a crippled man. And... He was begging, and uh, he asked for alms or charity from Peter and John. And instead of alms, Peter gave him a much greater gift, if you look at verse 6 of chapter 3. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And the beggar stood up. He, he, Peter raised him up, and he stood up, and his ankles became strong. And he was able to walk, and he began to walk and jump. And he followed Peter and John into the temple. And he was jumping and leaping and, of course, made quite a, a stir in the temple. And people gathered, and they recognized him. Uh, they had seen him as they went. These other people who went into the temple regularly, just as you might see a, a homeless person at Walmart day after day, the same person. They had seen this man, and here he was, jumping and walking and praising God. And so the people came together, and once more Peter, in verse, four, verse 11, took the opportunity to preach. And so we have Peter's second sermon there in chapter 4, starting in verse 11. And in a lot of ways, there's different details, but it's the same preaching uh, of Scripture and pointing to the Messiah and explaining who Jesus is, that he's truly the Messiah, the Christ, and that the Jewish people have crucified him, and they need to repent 
and receive the refreshing of the Spirit from God that's being sent upon them. However, in chapter 4, uh, as Peter is apparently still in the middle of his sermon, uh, the priests, some of the priests and the captain of the temple guard and some of the Sadducees come and they're very annoyed by what's happening here, that the uh, people, these apostles are preaching and they're obviously condemning the leaders of the Jewish people. And so they, they take them away and they arrest them and they put him in custody uh, for the night. And then in the morning, uh, they assemble some of their council, some of these same people and maybe others. They gather there in Jerusalem with the high priest and they bring Peter and John before them. And in verse, chapter, verse 7 of chapter 4, if you look at that, they set Peter and John in the middle of, it, of the group and they ask, by what power and by what name did you do this uh, miracle? And I think Peter is really very sarcastic in, uh, in verse 8. It's a good kind of sarcasm. I, I think he's saying, oh, okay, if you're uh, wanting to know uh, why we did this good deed, if we're on trial for healing somebody, I guess that's why we're on trial here, because we just healed somebody. Is that why we're on trial? If so, uh, we are not hesitant to tell you that we did it in the name of Jesus. We did it by the power of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified. And so uh, then uh, they, they, they come, and then he goes on again to talk, uh, again using the Old Testament, verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by the builders. Can you see how that's fulfilling the Old Testament? The builders, the Jewish leaders have rejected the very cornerstone, but he has become the cornerstone. And, uh, there's, and then Peter says a really famous and important verse in the New Testament, Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is early in the church's history. It's early in the preaching of the apostles, but that's a verse that we take home with us, don't we? That's a verse that holds us to the Christian faith. It speaks of the exclusiveness of the way of salvation through Christ alone. And so uh, it says in verse 13, they were, uh, in verse 13, that they were, impressed, maybe shocked by the boldness of Peter and John. They were just kind of ordinary fishermen, and yet they seemed to know the scriptures, and they were fearless. And it says that they noted that these men had been with Jesus. So they sent them out, and they discussed, the council discussed among themselves, what are we going to do with these guys? We can't deny there's a miracle that's happened. Um, but we've got to stop this. You know, we can't have them going around condemning us and talking about Jesus as if he's the Messiah and so forth. And so they bring him back in and they say, um, you cannot talk about this anymore. You need to stop preaching about Jesus and saying these things about him. In verse uh, 18, they charge them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And then verse 19, again, is a really key verse, a beautiful verse in the New Testament that's worth memorizing and thinking about. Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You be the judge. Should we obey you or should we obey God? And how can we not stop talking about what we know to be true and what we've seen? So they took a strong stand for the Lord, Peter and John. It's not like Peter uh, in the uh, courtyard of the 
high priest uh, before Jesus was crucified anymore, is it? So they take a strong stand. But they go back to their uh, group then in chapter, where we began in chapter uh, 4, verse 23, and report to them. And even though Peter and John were standing strong for the Lord, they needed fortification in their stand. And so we are looking tonight again at three principles or attributes of the church, three characteristics of the church. And the first one we have tonight is the church must pray. I think you recognize these are fairly simple points, but I hope, uh, I think in, in our discussion, the sermon discussion, I was encouraged by the application that people were making uh, to your own lives, and I encourage you to do that tonight. The church must pray. A church, a true church of Jesus Christ, a faithful church, is a praying church. And so we see there, uh, when in verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests had said, and the elders had said to them, and when they heard it, when the Christians gathered together heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God in prayer. We've already seen just in, in our studies so far the first two chapters that prayer was uh, of prominence in the church already. Uh, we saw in Acts 1 verse 14 that they... Uh, when Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem, they went back and they assembled and they prayed uh, together. And in chapter 1 also, they prayed as they chose a replacement for Judas as one of the 12 who would be a witness to Christ's resurrection. So we already see them praying. In Acts 2.42, we noted that part of what the uh, Christians, the new Christians devoted themselves was to the prayers, as we said this morning. And here... And, and, of course, prayer will continue to be prominent throughout the book of Acts. So it's, it's really a characteristic of the church that God used in those days and that he still uses today in our day. In this passage, we have a sampling of a prayer of believers, just like this morning we had a sampling of the preaching of Peter. And so let's look at a little bit at, that, at this prayer as we think about its import, the importance of prayer. Uh, it's clear that it was a group meeting. It's not completely clear uh, whether one person prayed or several people prayed, one person prayed for the whole group, whether uh, the whole gathering, many people prayed. I guess we could, um, you know, we really don't know, but what uh, is said here, the prayer that's said here is certainly a summary of the basic thing they were praying. And uh, so let's look at what it says. They lifted their voices up to God and they said, in verse uh, 24, the middle of verse 24, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. God is sovereign. They acknowledge him as they hallow his name. They recognize who he is. He's over all these things. And certainly we've been noting as we've looked at different things here in uh, the book of Acts, how much the apostles believed in the predestinating work of God and the sovereign control of God over all things that were going on. And it struck, has struck me recently how often uh, prayers begin by saying, you are the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Often prayers go back to our creator God and just in a broad way acknowledge that he's the creator of everything, heaven, earth, sea. And if you think of Genesis 1, that's what you see. That's heaven, earth, the sea, and everything in it. God created it. So they acknowledge that in their prayer. And then once again in their prayer, they're quoting scripture, which I hope many of us are learning is, is part of 
a good way for us to learn to pray, not just in public, but in our private prayers, because as we quote scripture, um, we are praying as, as the Spirit is leading us uh, through the Word of God. And so they quote um, what David said in Psalm 2 there. They say, what the, the David, speaking by the Holy Spirit, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers have gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And how relevant that was uh, to, to what had just happened. Look at what they say in verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, against the Messiah, against your anointed one, both uh, Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. You see, they're saying this was fulfilled in our seeing uh, just in Jerusalem and what happened to Jesus as he was uh, taken prisoner and then tried and then uh, judged guilty and put on the cross. So this has just happened. And, of course, there's another sense in which this prophecy uh, happens all through history. We were singing of David being uh, chased by Saul. So all through history, the devil and his... Uh, kingdom have fought against God's kingdom even to the point of uh, killing the Messiah when the Messiah finally came not realizing that in doing that uh, Christ was paying the atonement for our sins but at the cross the the battle between uh, the wicked and the righteous really came to a head and yet it continues and they recognize this um, as you as you follow along in verse 28 again the predestinated hand of God is is mentioned in all these things and then in verse 29, they bring to their own situation this prophecy as they're praying. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak boldly your word with all boldness. So they're saying, and look, Lord, look at what the council just did to us. They're threatening us. See their threats. This is a continuation of what Psalm 2 is talking about. It happened to Jesus, and now it's happening to us. And so, they say, and so then they have their petition... They've led up to their petition, and what is it? It's that God would give them boldness. It's interesting. Not, God, will you keep them from hurting us, but God, will you give us boldness to keep speaking the truth? And persecuted Christians still need to pray that prayer, don't they, in countries, like, countries where they're being persecuted. And we need to still pray that way, or that, that way when we feel persecuted in one way or another. So... We see this prayer uh, having adoration and praise to God, the creator, creator of heaven and earth, and the sea and everything in it. He recognizes sovereign control. The word is quoted. The situation is recounted. And it's connected with that very prophecy. And there's a sincere and heartfelt request to God to intervene and help. When opposition arises, when troubles face us, when it seems roadblocks have been raised against the kingdom of God, we need the Lord's strength and the Lord's guidance. And it's a time for the church to pray. And notice the answer to prayer that came immediately in this case. Uh, they also prayed that, recognized that God was stretching out his hand to do miracles and wonders through the, the name of Jesus. And then when they had prayed, it says in verse 31, the place was shaken they, where they were gathered, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So they got what they asked for. God, they prayed that they would be bold. But notice that more happened as well. The, 
shaking of the building was something. But also, as you go on down, there was unity of the believers. There was the sharing of goods. There were still signs done by the apostles. Uh, they were continuing to give their testimony with power, and great grace was on them all. There was not a needy person among them. And so we see uh, demonstrated here what we often see in Scripture, that uh, God's people ask for something, and God gives them more than they ask for. Can you remember a case of that in the Old Testament? A king who prayed for something, and he asked for wisdom, and God said, I'll give you riches and honor as well. And he did to Solomon. And the Bible says in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, that God can do more than we ask or imagine. So let us seek first God's kingdom and all other needs will be met as well. Matthew 6:33. How often do you and I wring our hands in despair at the condition of the church or reel at each blow that comes our way? wondering if anything good can happen in our world or in our country. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's tell him our troubles and the threats that we see being made to his kingdom. Let's remind him of his promises. Let's recall the days of old when he delivered his people. And let's ask for him to again display his mighty power in our day. The fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, James 5:16. Well, in the midst of this account about prayer, we find the second thing we want to note uh, this evening about the church. The church, secondly, must be united. And we see this in Acts 4:32. The church must pray. The church must be united. In verse 32, it says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. We shouldn't take such unity uh, for granted, and often it's mentioned as we go through the book of Acts, the unity, as, as there is unity in the church. Such unity shouldn't be taken for granted. Sometimes we think there will never be problems in the church, and then we're surprised when there are problems. The church can be filled with the Holy Spirit, it can preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It can be devoted to the means of grace. It can even pray fervently. But without unity, the church will not prosper. In the Old Testament, the people of God often refused to have faith in the Lord. And at one point, he shut them out of going into the promised land. He sent them into the wilderness for 40 years. But the people revolted against him. And they gathered together, some of them, and said, let's go fight uh, ourselves, we can do this, and they were soundly defeated. And so it is any time there's division, any time we go against the Lord's will. Very often in the Old Testament, the Israelites rebelled against Moses and Aaron, and they grumbled, and there was division. Remember Korah, Dathan, and Abiram in Numbers 16. And this always leads to trouble. Back, it always led to trouble back then, and it still does today, division. When we are thinking about what... Uh, we want for our church. We should recall what Jesus told his disciples in John 33, how his church would be known. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's what Jesus seemed to put preeminently for the church. Unity, love, peace. Paul said, without love, the church is only a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
1 Corinthians 13.1. Again, we're, there's notations of the oneness of the church early on in Acts 1.14. We see a very similar statement to Acts 4.32. In Acts 1.14 it says, All these were with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. They were there with one accord, a very similar statement. And there are other statements like that uh, in the book of Acts as you go through where there was unity and peace and prosperity um, in, the, in the church. And maybe one thing we should observe from that is if there was unity when there were 120, is there still going to be unity when there's 3,000? Is there still going to be unity when there's 5,000? And so uh, church... Churches change, people change, new people come, we want new people, we want the church to grow. But that certainly uh, is more people uh, that we can bump into uh, emotionally and spiritually in the church. But we see uh, again and again the importance of unity in the book of Acts. And we see this spirit uh, demonstrated and this desire for unity uh, even where there are differences of opinion, we see a couple of that as, as we go on in the book of Acts. In Acts 6, there was a problem. Uh, people were complaining because they weren't getting fair treatment. And so the church didn't just ignore that. They, they dealt with it, and they tried to come up with a solution. And they appointed the, the deacons and, who did the work of the distribution. In Acts 15, a doctrinal issue came up. Uh, do, you, do you have to keep all the laws of Moses in order to be saved? Do you have to be circumcised? Do the Gentiles have to become Jews in order to be Christians? And this was a serious question which is, could have destroyed the gospel if it had become the view of the church. Uh, and yet it was handled uh, by going, having a council and bringing together people. And, and it continued uh, to divide the church in some ways uh, uh, ever since those, that issue of works and and how that uh, fits in with grace. But the point in making is that the church not only uh, enjoyed unity, but when there were problems, they tried to seek unity as best they could. So it's not that the early church had no problems, uh, but they sought to deal with those problems. Thinking a little more about unity, uh, we could say, and it's good to realize, that there is a natural unity which exists among believers. When a person becomes a Christian or another person becomes a Christian, you, you should be drawn to each other. But maybe I shouldn't call it a natural unity. Maybe a better word is a supernatural unity because you're born of the Spirit. The Spirit has entered your heart. And so you have that unity. You believe the same things. You are trusting in the same Savior. So there's, there's a supernatural unity that comes between Christians. So our job, in a sense, is not to manufacture unity, but to preserve unity or maintain unity with other Christians and in the church. And that's exactly what Ephesians 4.3 says. It says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit, to preserve the unity, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I believe what that's saying is there is a unity. Work hard at keeping that unity by living at peace, let the bond of peace keep you get together in all your um, interaction with people. Let peace reign. And we need to be wise, and we need to be alert, and you need to be wise and alert even in this time without a pastor. Uh, I might mention that up in uh, Laramie, we're a much smaller congregation, but we were really blessed by 
unity, even as our pastor uh, took another call. And then I would say even the unity grew as we worked together as a congregation. And we prayed that the unity would remain. And as I say, we need to be wise and be alert. The devil loves to bring division into the church because disunity can derail everything else. Congregations can be very zealous for evangelism, but then falter and stumble badly because members fight about how to do the evangelism. Congregation can be very merciful and seeking to help in the community and help their members, but then there can be division over how to help. So watch out for those things. Do you think, do you or I think our ideas are the best? Are we tempted to run ahead of the congregation and its leadership because we're in such a hurry to employ some program or some idea that worked well in a church we once attended? Am I tempted to fight for my own choice of a pastor? Or can I put forth my view in a controlled and pleasant manner and allow the Spirit of God to work in people's hearts to bring us to consensus regarding God's will? Don't sacrifice unity for the sake of your own pet program. Sometimes uh, it's just little annoyances and each other's idiosyncrasies, peculiarities and quirks that pull us apart. But love covers a multitude of sins, and I think it includes that kind of thing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is forgiving. It thinks the best of other people. It sacrifices its opinions and preferences for the good of the whole church. And when we have real problems or real offenses that happen, we need to follow the directions of Matthew 18 in seeking to resolve those offenses and those sins and those serious problems. Have you been hurt by someone? Go and speak to them. But do it in a humble way, realizing that you may have hurt them also. Often, relationships are actually deepened and strengthened when we go through struggles and then resolve them. Sometimes our relationships, I won't say they're superficial, but they haven't been tested sometimes. And then when they are tested and we get through that, uh, we come to love each other in a greater way. The times, the few times that I've experienced some really difficulties uh, with people in the church, uh, as I look back on those years later, there's much more the love I feel for those people and I think it comes the other way than maybe uh, the upset we had at the time. God pronounces wonderful blessings on unity in the church. Uh, I just want to read a psalm from Psalm 133, which we'll be singing in a bit. And uh, just have you think for a second about the words of that three-verse psalm, Psalm 133. I'm sure you've sung it here. And maybe at times you wonder, what is that talking about? <laughs> or maybe other times you, you know what it's talking about, but you don't really think about what it's saying. Listen to the words. Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, the priest, the high priest, when he was anointed. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, the blessing has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. I'm talking about the church. I'm talking about God blessing the church. Talking about brothers and sisters, the family of God, uh, living in unity. And it makes two comparisons. It says like it's like the anointing oil, which represented the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, 
coming down on Aaron and going down on his beard and onto the collar of his robe. And then it says, it's like the second illustration it gives, it's like the dew on the high mountain of Hermon that they probably could see in different parts of Israel. The snow like we see on Pikes Peak or something, maybe before there's snow in Colorado Springs. But you see the snow up there, it's like that snow coming down on the lower hill of Jerusalem. That dew that brings water and fruitfulness to the earth. Not up there on Mount Hermon, but coming right down on the church of Jesus Christ, the city of God. And uh, and what's what it's saying is just as the dew comes down and blesses, just as the oil comes down and blesses, so God's blessing comes down upon his church. And is it because of our unity? It's, I don't think so. It's not clear. God blesses the church with unity. But, of course, we have our part in, uh, provi- in, in developing and preser- in preserving that unity, don't we? But it's the blessing of God when there's unity. And so seek that blessing from him. The church was unified. The church was praying. The church was growing at the end of chapter 4. But there was a challenge on the horizon, something we wouldn't have ever expected uh, at the end of of chapter 4. We come to chapter 5, and suddenly here comes Ananias and Sapphira, and they do something wicked. So thirdly, as we think about this uh, chapter 5, thirdly and finally today, The church must seek holiness. The church must seek holiness, number three on your outline. I think we should notice, uh, first of all, the parallel in the Old Testament. It's it's a striking parallel, and certainly it's uh, it's something that was determined and happened and uh, and is recorded uh, for our learning. Just as Achan in the Old Testament, you remember, in Joshua 7, sin very early on in uh, the Israelites' conquest of Canaan. Just as Achan was caught in sin, he wasn't, nobody was to take anything from Jericho. The walls fell down. Everything was to be destroyed. But Achan thought, what would it hurt? Here's a robe, beautiful robe. Nobody, why throw it in the junk pile? I'll take it. A bar of gold, that's probably pretty value. And 200 shekels of silver money, I, I think, is what it was or what they used for money. And so he grabbed some of this plunder and hid it under his tent, in the dirt under his tent. And then the Israelites went to their next battle, which wasn't expected to be a very bad one, and they lost. The conquest of Canaan stalled out as they went to Ai, I believe it was. And the New Testament church also was at a point where sin in the midst could have crippled the further growth and prosperity of the church. This is a significant event. We are saved by the mercy and grace of God. Our works have no part in saving us. Apart from the Holy Spirit's work in our life, we cannot please God. We cannot come to God. However, once we're drawn to the Savior, once we're forgiven of our sins, once we're reconciled to our Creator, we are called to new obedience. And the Ananias and Sapphira, whatever their real spiritual state was, we may not be able to determine, but they lied to the Holy Spirit. And this was revealed to Peter who confronted them. And he gave them a chance to, con- to confess or to say, to back up. He gave Ananias a chance and he gave Sapphira a chance too. He didn't know whether she was in on it, but they both denied uh, that they were li- or told them that the, the amount was what they said it was. And again, Peter was very clear 
The property was yours. You didn't have to sell it. It isn't communism here. Uh, the property, when you sold it, the money was yours. You could do with it what, with it what you like. But you lied to God. You tried to deceive us. And so this is a serious sin. God doesn't always uh, exercise discipline himself as he did in this way. And later, though, he calls the church to exercise discipline. And so as we seek holiness, we also need to realize that one of the uh, requirements of the church is when necessary to exercise discipline of its members. And sometimes that can mean a simple admonition, sometimes a rebuke, and sometimes uh, a taking away of the um, so of the privilege of the Lord's Supper for a time, and sometimes, if there's not repentance, even excommunication. And God blesses those means of discipline and brings people back to the Lord through them, even though often we're afraid to employ those things or do what we need to do. But God took the action this time, and I believe that's in part because this is for our learning. This is for our example. This was early in the church, just like Achan's sin was treated so severely in order that the people would see God wanted holiness and God would not be with them if they allowed sin in their midst. So Ananias and Sapphira were dealt with very severely because the church needed to see that God is concerned about holiness. And what was the result then? Of, and, and sin is cancerous. It spreads and it can eventually kill the body of Christ if it's not addressed. What was the result of this discipline? It's, it's very interesting what happens there down in verse 12. Um, after, I guess it's verse 11. After this happened, it says, if you look at verse 11, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. So the Christians were meeting, particularly in one area of the temple. But verse 13 makes this statement, none of the rest dared join them. So hearing what had happened, particularly with Ananias and Sapphira, maybe some people had been joining, a lot of people coming into the church, they sort of said, whoa, they backed off a little bit. They said, maybe we, didn't, we need to think about this a little bit before we be follow this, this group. This is serious business. But it says, end of verse 13, they held the, they, the people held the Christians in high esteem. And then it's almost like it's the opposite thing happened in verse 14. Even though many were not were staying away from them, more and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, and added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. Is, is it a, a contradiction here? People stayed away, or people came in? What was happening? Well, I think it's it's pretty obvious, really, when you really think about it. The ones who were called, the ones who were serious, came in. The ones who were not called, the ones who were not serious, backed away. And a lot of problems in the church were prevented by that, you know, because there might have been a lot more need for discipline in those early days. What we learned from those last verses is that holiness and growth are not mutually exclusive in the church. Holiness and growth are not mutually exclusive. High standards may drive away some people. However, they draw they will draw those who are sincere believers. And I don't mean high standards we make up, but the high standards of the Word of God. We shouldn't add to God's commands. But God's commands are high. God declared, Leviticus 19.2, Be holy as I am holy. Holiness, according to Psalm 29 and 96, 
Holiness is becoming to the church. Holiness is the beauty of Christ's church. Without it, the church can become a synagogue of Satan, maybe what we read about in Matthew 23. Corporate holiness, though, begins with individual holiness. And individual holiness must begin in the heart of each one of us. And it will then show itself in, our li- in lives that honor our Savior. Any one of you, any one of us, may need correction sometime in doctrine or life. That's not the end of your road as a Christian. We should not resist the rod when it's administered by the Lord or when it's administered in love by the church. We should be thankful for leaders and friends in the church who call us to a higher standard of holiness. Holiness, though, we must remember, is not some kind of outward dressing outward dressing up in order to make other people impressed with our outward actions. That's apparently what Ananias and Sapphira thought it was, that holiness was an outward dressing to try to, try to impress other people. But holiness is real commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, which then results in doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with your God, Micah 6.8. Ananias and Sapphira were hypocrites who thought that they could fool God as easily as we can fool one another, but they could not. And neither can we on the day we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment. Well, relying on the Holy Spirit, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, devoting ourselves to the means of grace, prayer, unity, and seeking holiness, which also means exercising discipline in the church when necessary. These are are things God used in the early church to promote its growth and its progress. And these are some of the same characteristics of a church today which God uses for his glory and for the salvation of souls. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that you will bless uh, the Springs Reformed Church in the days ahead with these characteristics that we've spoken of today. We pray that the gospel might go forth in power from this congregation, from this pulpit, from this church. We pray that there might be unity and that you will help each one here to work to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And we uh, pray uh, also, Lord, that you will uh, convict of sin and cause us to repent and where necessary to confess to others and to get help, Lord. We pray that you will bless the leaders of this church and give them great wisdom. May all of us rely on the Holy Spirit. We pray that your will be done and that your kingdom will come uh, and that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, We pray for your good blessing upon this church. We thank you for your goodness to them over many years and we pray that that may continue to uh, be showered down upon them through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.